Imagine your new bathroom. A sparkling new tub, a modern shower conversion, a seamless new wall, all done in as little as a day. Introducing Bathfitter. Join over 2 million customers delighted with our one-of-a-kind remodeling process. No demolition, no mess. Guaranteed for life. Installed in as little as a day. Book a free in-home consultation at bathfitterpodcasts.com and get our best offer of the year right now. Bathfitter, 35 years of better bath remodels. Welcome to the New Heights Show on Education. I'm Pamela Clark, founder and director of the New Heights Educational Group. And I'm here with David Smith, the founder of Silicon Valley High School, who has helped us get these podcasts produced and delivered to you. Yes, Pamela, when we saw the great things that you and your army of volunteers were achieving at New Heights, we wanted to get involved. We're happy to work with you to leverage the internet and make quality education accessible and affordable to everyone, everywhere. Thank you, David. We appreciate Silicon Valley High School helping us to get these podcasts out to the hundreds of thousands of listeners from all over the world. So I hope you enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to the New Heights Educational Group Show on Education for February 1st, 2014. My name is Kaden Behan, your host. And today we're going to be talking about high school poverty levels and the ties to college education and tuition. But before we begin, we always have an answer. Right now, you might be struggling through your classes or even failing them. You might be worried that you may not finish high school. There might have even been a thought that you may not be smart enough. Well, the New Heights Educational Group begs to differ. We not only think you are smart enough, but with our help, you will complete your high school diploma. The New Heights Educational Group strives to improve your academic success through its tutoring services. To learn more, please visit newheightseducation.org and contact us. New Heights Educational Group, educational resources to help reach your goals. This is the topic like we're going to be talking about today. And this is really going to focus on the cost of education and specifically the cost of higher education and how the point is that for for high schools, there seems to be a collaboration with the amount of students not able to afford higher education just due to higher education costs. So we're going to read an article um, that I posted the link to this article online on the radio show website, so that way you can read along with me, uh, just in case that I go a little bit too fast. But it's titled, High School Poverty Levels Tied to College Going. When it comes to sending high school graduates to college and ensuring they succeed, a school's poverty can be bigger, be a bigger barrier than a diverse student body or a rural or inner city location. In what is described as the first national study of its kind on college transitions and persistence, the National Student Clearinghouse Research Center found high poverty high schools sent little more than half their class of 2012 graduates to college the, fall, the following fall compared with 70% of graduates from higher-income high schools. The data are drawn from 3,000 public high schools and clearinghouses student tracker program. The center provides research, reporting, and verification services to high schools and colleges that pay an annual fee for school-level data. Digging into the data, the research found high-poverty schools follow very similar patterns of college enrollment and persistence at both two- and four-year colleges, regardless of whether they were located in urban or rural areas, 
or whether at least 40% of their students were members of minorities. Only the higher income schools was the racial, only in higher income schools was the racial makeup of the enrollment associated with lower college attendance, and even there it was smaller than the gap between rich and poor. Post-secondary persistence. Graduates of higher income high schools, regardless of whether they are located in cities or rural areas, are more likely to stay in college beyond the first year. Researchers said that an average income level of a school's student body was also a better predictor of college persistence than its racial or ethnic makeup. What we see here is a much bigger difference in college enrollment rates based on poverty level than race or geography, said Douglas T. Shaprio, the executive director of Hernan, um, Hernan VA based in Clearinghouse Research Center. The big divider here is low income schools, Mr. Shaprio said. The results support previous findings that students in high poverty schools are more likely to choose two-year colleges than four-year ones. So the study does not analyze how college's selectivity or cost played into students' choices. The reality is poverty is a factor that affects achievement and we cannot continue to ignore it. The executive, uh, Daniel uh, A. Dominic said, the executive director of American Association of School Administrators at a briefing on the report in Washington last week. While teacher quality curriculum and pedagogy um, have all shown to affect student learning, so have supporters, so has support outside the school, such as whether children have had breakfast or parent support, he said. It's not an issue of equality. What we need is equity. These kids need more including preschool support, wraparound programs, high school guidance, and information about colleges. Transitions and transfers. Mr. Shapiro was quick to acknowledge that because the clearinghouse data was taken only from schools participating in his organization's student tracker program, the study sample does not represent American students overall. It gives a pretty detailed picture, however. More than 2.3 million students, about a quarter of all high school graduates in the 50 states and the District of Columbia between 2010 and 2012 were tracked from graduation well into their college careers. Moreover, the clearinghouse tracked students from college to college in private and public institutions and at schools both in and out of state where they had graduated, providing what is seen as an unprecedented look at students' persistence in college. Students from low-income schools did make up for little of the initial college enrollment gap over the course of the first in the winter and spring semesters after graduation, an additional 4% to 6% of students from wealthier schools enrolled in college than had in the fall immediately after high school. For students from low-income schools, later enrollments boosted college going rates by 6 to 7%. The pattern held the second year of second year after high school, suggesting that a significant majority of graduates from all school types eventually made it to college. The clearinghouse plans to provide annual updates, which Mr. Shepherd said could help fill in some of the blanks in transition and progression rates in the initial report. For example, the study counts all U.S. census-labeled cities, suburban, and town schools as urban, which may paper over differences between suburban and inner city schools. It also does not break out rates of college enrollment or persistence for students in individual racial or ethnic groups. The schools in the group's data program have received more detailed individual reports privately, however. The hope is that over time, high schools and districts in the United States will be able to use these, the information to help cover 
wise thinking at a local level and how to improve their respective higher education. Excuse me. The summary of the article is basically talking about um, the different barriers that high schools have to deal with when it comes to their students being able to progress on into college. And what this article is talking about is that it finds now that instead of race and location of schools being a major factor in whether or not students are able to go on into college, poverty and low income levels seems to be more of a barrier than race and location uh, for this particular <coughs> rate of college-going students. And so Mr. Shaprio, who's the head of this for um, Vermont, wants to focus more on giving resources to those who are impoverished in high schools with low-income students. And this study is helping to bring awareness to this issue. Um, more so than it's been given in the past. And so that's the main point of sharing this particular article with the audience to propose a different kind of outlook onto why some students are unable to go to college, perhaps not because they are unprepared or unwilling, but poverty and uh, income status play a very key role in them being able to afford going to college. And so it's very important to keep in consideration. Additionally, I have another article here that I wanted to share, which is about how to get college tuition under control. And again, this is also available on our blog talk radio description for this show, so you can read along with me if you choose to do so. How to get college tuition under control. Three economists debate Three economists debate the causes of and possible solutions for the high cost of college. In the past decade, college tuition has risen three times as fast as the consumer price index and twice as fast as medical care. How can that be and what can be done about it? To answer those questions, the Wall Street Journal invited three economists with distinctly different orientations within higher education to discuss the issue. Judy Eichenbaum teaches at Wright State University, Fairborn, Ohio, and is president of the American Association of University Professors, which promotes academic freedom and shared governance on college campuses. Catherine Lyle was president of the University of Wisconsin System from 1992 to 2004, and Richard Vetter is director of the Center for College Affordability and Productivity in Washington, D.C., which researches cost and efficiency in higher education. This conversation was conducted by email between August 28th and September 3rd, and here are edited excerpts. So why, are, why is college tuition so high? Why does college cost so much? Dr. Fitchenbaum says, one of the most important factors driving price at public colleges and universities has been the decline in state support for higher education. Between 1987 and 2012, in real dollars, government support has declined from $8,497 to $5,906 per student. The second major culprit is the rising cost. Critics of higher education often blame faculty salaries for rising costs, However, when measured in constant dollar salaries for full-time faculty at public institutions have actually declined. What is driving costs is the metastasizing army of administrators with bloated salaries 
and our university presidents who are now paid as though they are CEOs running a business and not a very successful one at that. There is also the growth in entertainment spending and spending on anemones. Amenities. Many universities claim that they must compete and therefore have borrowed millions to build luxury dorms, new dining halls, and rock climbing walls. They also spend millions subsidizing, inter- subsidizing intercollegiate athletics. Dr. Vetter says, Professor Fischenbaum tells us part of the story well, but faculty are not all saints. At many schools, tenured faculty have acquired low teaching loads to pursue trivial research published in journals no one reads, forcing administrators to hire cheap adjuncts who often do a fine job teaching at at a much lower cost. The role of sluggish state appropriation growth is somewhat exaggerated. When appropriations rise, universities have used a large portion of the money to fund the unproductive bureaucracy. Moreover, the good professor ignores the 50-fold growth in federal student financial assistance programs since 1970. Former Education Secretary Bill Bennett was mostly right when he said federal aid programs enabled college to raise tuition fees, helping to fuel the academic arms race. Dr. Fischenbaum, Professor Vetter puts forth the Bennett hypothesis that is rising financial aid that is driving tuition higher. Perhaps the most comprehensive review of the literature on this topic is a study. Does federal financial aid drive up college prices by Donald Heller, Dean of the College of Education at Michigan State University, which concluded that while the Bennett hypothesis, the hypothesis that more financial aid is driving up the cost of tuition, may be intriguing, but there is little compelling evidence that holds true with respect to the price-setting behavior of colleges and universities in the United States. Dr. Lyle contributes to the conversation. On the point about administrative bloat, I'd like to make two observations. The single largest engine of this was the embrace of IT by universities. In the beginning, faculty dealt with their colleagues' computer problems, but the burgeoning demand of campus-wide IT services soon swamped what faculty were willing and able to do and raised the cry to hire IT staff. Of course, IT then exploded in size and complexity. So when faculty bemoan administrative bloat, the first question is, should they should they be willing, should be whether they're willing to go back to the days when they, the faculty, handled all the administrative tasks. Another way to reduce administrative bloat would be to merge, eliminate, and restructure high education organizations, simplifying the large number of individual departments, centers, and institutions into fewer administrative units. Anyone who has tried this knows how jealously faculty guard these feasts. Dr. Better, universities are extremely secretive about some basic issues relating to their performance. For example, the federal government spends 35 to 40 billion annually on Pell grants, but to my knowledge, they do not publish data on the percent of Pell recipients who graduate in around six years which is a rather important statistic. Even more fundamentally, we do not know whether or not graduate students at Harvard, Kansas State, or community college know more or think more critically than when they entered. Professor Lyle's defense of the administrative explosion is weak. No government agency forced universities to add armies of sustainability coordinators, diversity specialists, communications officers, and assistant deans of everything. IT growth has been large, but most but in most of American life, this brought productivity, advance, and lower costs. The opposite is true in higher education. 
so that was just a section on why they believe that the cost is so high. And as you can see, even these professionals don't really have a great or they have a great understanding, but they do not have an agreement necessarily of why education costs are so high. So I did want to present this to the audience um, since it's in conversation format because it allows you to see different people's opinions on why they believe and have researched uh, that the cost of higher education is so uh, expansive. And hopefully we have enough time to read through their conversation on how to reduce this cost. So I'm going to begin now. This podcast is brought to you by Silicon Valley High School, the world's fastest growing, video-based, self-paced, teacher-supported, fully accredited online school that's recommended by more than 96% of students. Take individual courses at just $95 each or earn your high school diploma at any age. Check us out at svhs.co. Uh, let's turn towards solutions to cut costs. Professor Eichenbaum offers this. The federal government and accrediting bodies could play a positive role here by developing regulations that force institutions to spend a certain percentage of resources on instruction and by writing reg regulations that would reduce competition over luxury items. But would this just amount to further regulatory bloat? Dr. Better, the last thing higher education needs is more regulation from the federal government and accrediting agencies who themselves are anti-innovative and have huge conflicts of interest in their dealings. Significantly reducing the federal presence in financial aid would serve two desirable goals, reducing enrollment, enrollment somewhat, therefore improving the, balance, the imbalance between the availability of good jobs and the number of graduates, and by reducing the demand for higher education, lowering the ability of colleges' prices. It would lower college re revenues and force schools to take steps to economize, reduce administrative bloat, force professors to teach more, and stem the collegiate edifice complex that raises capital costs. Cost-cutting ideas like three-year bachelor's degree and greater use of testing to demonstrate workplace competency might take hold, along with greater reliance on electronic forms of learning. State governments should give subsidy payments to students, not institutions, as a way to refocus emphasis on instruction and enhance competition. Dr. Lyle suggests that we need to start a form, start from a recognition that we have crossed the key line from higher education as subsidized public good to higher education as a competitive market good. This means that we need a new and more honest business model for public universities, one that ceases to treat them like as state agencies and treats them as valuable market-driven entities. This means reducing regulation to health and safety issues, releasing universities from state government operating requirements, such as mandatory participation in state health insurance and pension programs, and permitting universities to manage their own capital bonding and building projects, and enabling universities to manage their own human resources, hiring and pay policies outside of civil service rules. It also means letting some institutions fail when they cannot compete, compete in the marketplace. Dr. Fischenbroom provides, I want to partially agree with Professor Lyle that we are at least in the process of crossing a key line where higher education has been subsidized, has been a subsidized public good to one and where it is being privatized. 
unlike Private Lyle, Pro- Professor Lyle, I am not willing to give up on making higher education a subsidized public good. This is a path towards creating a bunch of Walmart-type universities that will serve working-class and middle-class students, while America's elite will continue to receive first-rate higher education at elite private institutions. This will further exacerbate the growing inequality in our society and lead to dismantling of our system of high-quality public higher education that has been the envy of the world. So as we can see, they don't reach a definite conclusion in this particular conversation, but I just wanted to share with you these ideas coming from these people who have experienced higher education from different backgrounds. And so these are their ideas about higher education and what can be done to eliminate costs and why it's so difficult, in fact, to change the system now that it seems to have gotten so out of hand. But that just that article I thought was interesting because it provided a little bit of insight, not necessarily answers necessarily as to how to fix college education costs since that is such a complicated issue in and of itself, but more so just to provide insight into some of the reasons why it's so expensive and some of, some of the ways that people are looking into hopefully decreasing the cost and the expense of higher education. So that's all for this week's show. Join us next week's show for School Improvement Model Shows Promise in the first I3 evaluation. More on that next week. Additionally, do try to stop by that coffee house meeting today. I know it's still going on. We have about a half hour left. So please do try to stop by again. Uh, thank you so much for listening to the show, and we'll see you next week. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Don't forget to rate us and follow us on your podcast player. Check out our show page, radio.newheightseducation.org, for monthly announcements and other happenings.